This podcast is supported by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme of the European Union. Welcome to the Rights Reporting Podcast. This is a show aiming to improve the rights of blind and partially sighted citizens in Europe. And my name is Neven Milivojevic, and I will be the host of today. Today we will focus on the important right of being able to participate in political and public life, as well as to vote independently. Well, this right is clearly stipulated in Article 29 in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So uh, it's clearly there. But unfortunately, well, the political visions do not always turn out uh, to reality. And uh, we can see that uh, implementation of these rights often are not in place. So today we have invited two guests, uh, two experts, one from Denmark and one from the United Kingdom. And uh, we will also learn more about different barriers and challenges, but also speak about what possibilities and what can be done uh, to find solutions. But before I uh, introduce our guests, let's listen to um, Tracy Deering, a blind politician from Hull in UK. And she will tell us about her experiences when she was elected councillor last year. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak to you um, about my experiences of being in politics as a blind woman. I was really, really keen to stand up for my own local community and um, stand up for disabled people actually in politics because I think it's really important that we have diversity in, in, in politics and a range of different voices having a say uh, about policies and practice and, and the decisions that affect us. My, my experience, um, first of all, in terms of campaigning and being part of a political party was a really positive one, actually. I, I, was, I had lots of encouragement and um, I, I received a lot of support from volunteers in the party and the party did give me some funding to, to bring in some additional support um, as I campaigned. However, I did find when I became elected as a councillor, so a local politician, that the authority um, where I was going to be a councillor was very ill-prepared to have a blind councillor in their midst. And it, it did take me quite a while to get the support I needed in place. So I think, first of all, the authority was very, very unprepared for even, even having a conversation with me about what I would need to be a local councillor. I think one of the big um, barriers I, I faced was having access to information and being able to read the same information as other councillors. So I was at a, a real disadvantage because um, the authority, as I said, were really ill-prepared, just weren't able 
to provide information in, in different formats. So it took me a while to work a way around that. Also, I, I found it um, because being a counsellor, there's a lot of formal meetings you need to chair and, and you need to be part of. And I was lucky enough to be be chosen and, and elected as a chair of what we call a committee, a, a scrutiny committee that looks at scrutinising decisions. But the, the, the formal arrangement of the meeting made it really difficult for me as a blind person to chair it. So, for example, everybody puts their hands up when they want to when they want to speak which made it initially very difficult for me to chair that meeting. I had to introduce lots of new systems and ways to enable me to to chair that committee. And and then a big part of my role is being out in the community. So um, just getting around safely, um, meeting people, giving information, travelling the ward knocking on people's door was, was really was really difficult. And as I, as I said, the authority was very unprepared in terms of how, how we were going to work together to resolve that. So for the first instance, I couldn't go out into the community safely to actually do, do my job. I couldn't, I, you know, I found it really difficult to travel across the ward. It took quite a, a bit of negotiation to get that support in place. Um, I'm eight months in now, and I have a I have negotiated with um, with the government and with um, the local authority to have a support worker, and the support worker helps me to negotiate the environment so helps me travel get to where I need to go meet people she helps me in meetings and I've been able to get um, reading material in a format that I can read but it, it has taken and still the reading of information is still a challenge but we're we're, we're quite a way way on now and I'm in a better position but these these are the things I think other blind politicians will face on a on a daily basis Thank you. So, uh, I would like to welcome our two guests for today's podcast. We have with us from Denmark, Diana Stentoft, who is the General Secretary of the World Blind Union. Welcome, Diana. Hello, and very good to be here. And we also have with us uh, from United Kingdom, James Adams, who is the Director of the Royal National Institute of Blind People in Scotland. Welcome, James. Hi, it's great to be here. Wonderful to have you both here. So, James, what are your thoughts about uh, Tracy Deering's uh, story we just heard? And do you have any, uh, do you recognize these challenges? And uh, what, what do you think can be done in this subject? There was three aspects to Tracy's story that struck me in particular. And within her story, there's actually potential solutions that can be brought in to help uh, people like Tracy who want to go into public life and engage in the political process. Uh, the first thing that struck me was that uh, she'd got some help and support from her local political party 
branch. Um, and that was a financial support to be able to have somebody to help her do the, the campaigning you have to do to get elected. I think that's something that's often you know, uh, not thought about. If somebody is blind or partially sighted, how do they go out and chap on doors, talk to voters, deliver leaflets, the sort of things that in the UK are, you know, what is done by political parties. So that was interesting to me. Um, the second thing I found uh, particularly interesting was that the local authority, the council uh, where she was elected to, were, didn't seem prepared to be able to deal with somebody who was blind actually getting elected. And you would think that's, that's a strange thing given that they must have known she was a candidate and they must have known that she had sight loss. And, you know, yet when she arrived, um, the third thing that struck me was that she found it difficult to get the information she required. Um, you know, a lot of information in in government, a lot of papers, a, a large volume of all sorts of things to read. Um, you know, it's critical and essential that that is made available and accessible to our elected representatives. I also found her experience of chairing uh, a meeting. I believe she was appointed to a scrutiny committee, a very important function of, of government uh, and of, of a council. And yet she was unable to initially, because of the lack of support that was there, to initially get her teeth right into fulfilling that role. I think um, what her story did demonstrate was that solutions are there. It just requires a bit of planning and foresight and engagement. So her local political party, they helped her out. Not all political parties at all levels do that, but there's something for them to think about in terms of how they would support somebody with disabilities and the Smith sight loss. Uh, there's no reason why a local authority, a council or a parliament can't be prepared for somebody with a disability or who has sight loss uh, becoming elected because it's going to happen and need to understand that and prepare for it. And the third thing is, in that preparation, they also should, with a bit of planning, be able to make information accessible and they should be able to um, get a mechanism whereby somebody can effectively discharge the chairing of a meeting, the running of a meeting, participation in a meeting. Um, so I think you know, those were the three areas I found very interesting. But within those, there were the seeds of how these things can be resolved for future. But would you say, James, that this is exceptional uh, with Hull in this case, or do, would you say this is uh, something which uh, is similar in, in most places in the UK? I would fear that that is the norm. I would heavily suspect, and in fact, of course, I do have other um, sort of friends and colleagues um, who have sight loss who uh, are elected into other bits of government in the UK, and that is something that is the case. It is the norm. It, it takes them to have sharp elbows to be able to make the strong points to get the support they need but they shouldn't have to do that that should be thought about in advance by the authorities well diana uh, what are your reflections on the possibilities to participate in public life for persons with disabilities well i think my reflections are actually quite well reflected in the the case of uh, of tracy and um if we look globally it's estimated that 15% approximately of the world population do have some form of disability uh, one way or the other. 
but looking into parliaments, into local authorities, into municipalities um, around the globe, actually what we can see is that very few people with disabilities are elected. So, so on that basis alone, it's very hard to see that, that people with disabilities are actually well included into public life. Um, and I do think that Tracy hits the mark when she kind of talks about the, the difficulties in getting provisions, as James are also mentioning. Um, but, but also another thing is when then talking more specifically about blind and, and partially sighted persons, one thing that, that is quite clear is that f from, from making the decision or from considering your own kind of interest in, in political life and, and, and desire to engage with, with the political life and the public life of your, of your town or your country, and to actually obtaining the right kind of information to get involved with a party to source out the information that is needed and required to, to make a, to be an active player and to get heavily involved. Actually, accessibility to this kind of information is, is very lacking in many places. So I think for, for, for visually impaired persons, uh, even getting started, if you like, is, is, is actually quite difficult. Um, and uh, again, quite well reflected in the number of visually impaired persons who are then eventually uh, elected for, for one office or another. So you would say that the situation, for instance, in Denmark, where you're from, it's, it's very similar to the one in the UK? Yes, um, it, it, it's very similar. And, and incidentally, actually, a, f a few years back, we, um, we had um, a, a lady, a young lady in a, an electric wheelchair who was brought into parliament because she, um, because she had to, to subst be a substitute for someone going on leave. And they had to rebuild the speaker's chair, this, the area where you would uh, perform your speeches, to enable her to, to even go there. And I think that just says everything about, you know, the difficulties that we have in providing uh, accessibility and, and, and giving the right provisions to enable people to even take up that office. And could I just also add that even the struggle to, to get into office, one thing is the election campaigns and all the things that are related to the, to the content of politics. But if you have to fight the battle to get the right provisions on the side of, of the struggle you already have, I think it, it makes it almost inhuman to, to try and run for office uh, in, in the various um, elections. Yes, it's a very serious matter of this. And I mean, we have been talking now about mainly uh, the responsibility of a society and the authorities. But, well, let's, let's look a little, for instance, about the uh, political parties. Uh, I guess they should have maybe a more important role in, in, in encouraging and enabling candidates with a disability. So, for instance, James... Uh, do you have any advices here? How, what could political parties do, uh, not in their decisions as decision makers, but more as parties? Yeah, I think this is a very, very good, important thing to um, explore. Political parties uh, want to be representative uh, of society. So in order for that to be the case, they really need to reflect 
their understanding uh, and how they conduct their internal administration and their processes so that it is easily accessible for uh, people with disabilities. Um, it's also important for political parties to build up role models uh, in society so that it does attract other people to go into politics who might otherwise think it's not something which would be accessible or possible uh, for them. Uh, I think um, one of part of Tracy's experience was a positive one in that her local political party helped support her to be able to go and do that sort of campaigning and so forth on the ground. I think all political parties can learn from that. I have uh, a friend who's a blind counsellor in, in where I live in Glasgow, and he does find it difficult to be able to go out and about on his own uh, or with you know, to meet others to go campaigning because he can't, you know, tell what street he's in sometimes or which door he's going to knock. And these are very basic things. However, they're utterly essential for that, you know, the conduct of the political process. And you don't, you know, we shouldn't exclude people because the political parties don't anticipate that could be an issue. So for them to find ways to be able to have uh, some dedicated resource uh, to be able to make that happen more easily for people with disabilities, I think is really very important. Um, another aspect which some political parties do do this um, to, to greater or lesser extent, but is to build within those parties and perhaps even cross-party networks of people with disabilities to be able to support each other, exchange information, work, about, work out that you know, the technical side of how to go about campaigning and being involved, I think is, is very important. I also think that political parties need to lead from the front. They have to make their own communications accessible. There's a, a, still a great culture in the UK of the political leaflet going through somebody's door and obviously being a professional in the visual impairment sector, I'm often appalled at the lack of basic accessibility features uh, in these leaflets. Even when it comes to like social media, when political parties are posting uh, pictures and photographs, we all know we can alt text it and make sure that it's described. These sort of small basic things should be built into the DNA of the political party's own operations. Um, because that in itself makes a statement and is more inclusive uh, and engaging. Uh, uh, the final thing I would, I would say on it, it would be a good start for all the political parties to be determined uh, to make the voting process in and of itself uh, fully accessible. And that's a, a big sort of campaign that's ongoing in the UK at the moment. Mm. Well, there, there seems to be many things actually which can be done. Um, we can come back to this uh, issue about the voting, but um, Diana, I have a question to you, as I know you're uh, expert on, on international frameworks and the CRPD, which is the United Nations Convention. Um, I mean, uh, is this a tool which can be used in this kind of um, uh, reality we have now? And how can, can um, uh, governments better use the CRPD to, to make a difference? Could you tell us a little about your thoughts on this? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I think the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is an immensely important uh, tool because in Article 29, as you also mentioned at the introduction, uh, Nevin, it is actually stated how persons with disabilities should have the right to vote, to vote in secret, 
to have access to the voting materials and also how um, as a person with disabilities we should have access to um, to the, the public life and even as important um, we should have the possibility to organize ourselves. So that article actually sets out what would be very basic human rights also when you have a disability. And I think for, for in, in that sense, um, in that sense, uh, we can use the, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities as a, a way of um, making our human rights clear because it's a very clear framework. It's very easily uh, accessed. It's very readable. So it's a way of, of, of saying it's not just an individual desire to vote or to be an active, uh, take active part. It's actually a human right. And I think the transformation into thinking that being part of political life is a human right is very important because that makes us, that makes us first and foremost humans and then incidentally with a disability. So having said that, we also have uh, quite a number of examples where the Convention on, on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities has, has actually been brought into use. Um, when when a, a nation or state uh, ratifies the Convention, what they subscribe to is to being monitored by the, the committee uh, on, in the UN system, um, making sure that if you have ratified the convention, you're actually going to, to fulfill it and, and to, to acknowledge that it is there and bring it into your national uh, laws and, and customs. So basically, um, we, what happened in, in Denmark um, over a more or less a 10-year period, just to give one example, is that when it was the Danish uh, state that had to go into the monitoring process, um, it was acknowledged that Denmark had problems with Article 29 because no provisions were made um, at, um, at election uh, stations to ensure that people with visual impairment could actually access the materials. And also you had to bring in not just one, but two of the electoral um, uh, people uh, overseeing the election, um, not of your choice, but two uh, people that were kind of decided for you. So your, your ballot would not be secret in any way. Um, Organizations of persons with disabilities in Denmark came together and wrote a shadow report to the committee saying, showing how the Danish state is not adhering to Article 29. And eventually the committee came out with recommendations that these things be changed in the Danish uh, laws and the frameworks guiding the Danish electoral processes. So basically, uh, since a few years back, um, we have now a system where, first of all, assistive technologies are provided. Um, so if you have low vision, you can go, you can still use um, magnification, you can get better light and so on. 
If you are completely blind or if you need assistance, you now have the choice to bring your own assistant uh, of your choice and without any of the persons from the electoral um, uh, station uh, being present. So, so this came about because organizations pushed and actually fully engaged with the monitoring of the Convention of Rights uh, of Persons with Disabilities. And to be honest, we have fought for this within Denmark for many years, but only after the Danish uh, state ratified the convention and we started using these uh, mechanisms within the convention, did anything happen uh, in the actual uh, laws guiding the electoral process. So I think these things are, so it does matter. And I think it's it's really important that, that we use these uh, these tools that we have available, even though it's very complex process and, and, and a very long process. This took almost 10 years. Well, but it's a good example. But may I ask you, Diana, uh, so does this mean that uh, uh, organizations of persons with disabilities in Denmark, they consider um, uh, it equal to to be able to vote independently, to be able to bring an uh, uh, assistant of, of choice? No, no. And actually, one other recommendation from the, the uh, UN committee on, on the convention actually is that in Denmark, we should in, introduce uh, more uh, technology into our uh, electoral system in order for in order for for people to be able to cast votes completely secretly so so that you can go on your own and you don't need to bring anyone um we haven't made it to that yet so i would say this is the first step of the way and i'm sure we'll we'll write another another section in in the next shadow report um, asking that that this be uh, pushed forward and and that we get to to vote in secret. Mm, most interesting. Well, I know James that you have been working with this same issue in in the UK to try to find solutions about how to to be able to cast uh, the vote secretly. So c- could you could you tell us a little about uh, the progress on that? Yes. Um... It's a little complicated. Uh, I shall try my best not to talk about the governance arrangements in the UK because <laughs> there's, there's different levels of devolution and administration and different laws. Um, but in general terms, what has happened in the UK is that um, there's been something called a tactile voting device, which has been allowed to be used um, underpinned by legislation in polling stations in the UK. And that is a sort of plastic device that go over the ballot paper and you would know um, which, under which flap uh, the party or candidate you wish to vote for would be. So you might know your party or your candidate would be under flap number three, which would help you be able to find where to put your mark on the ballot paper. Now, what's happened is that the um, this was challenged by a blind person who said that in and of itself does not guarantee the confidentiality and the secrecy of their vote because they might still need some support. So this went through the court system 
and the top court in the UK, the Supreme Court, agreed with that individual and said to the UK government, it's unlawful. We appreciate this is difficult, but please go and find another way of resolving this using technology or, or however. So, so that's positive. So there was a process started to start to, similar to Denmark, start looking at how to use technology, different ways of doing things. What's now happened is that the UK government is bringing forward another elections bill, not because of this issue, but they were bringing it forward anyway, and they've decided to change the bit of legislation which guaranteed the tactile voting device and say that's no longer required at all. So that is causing uh, RNIB and blind part sight people in the UK an issue because whilst that wasn't the perfect aid to help, it was something, and now they're saying it's not necessary and they want to water down, or we think they want to water down the whole um, provision and protection. Whilst the UK government would say they're looking to develop other ways of doing this and they'll leave it to local areas, the local elections officers, to decide what's best for their local area. What we think that will mean is it will reduce the guaranteed provision of being able to utilise um, support to be able to vote in confidence and in secret. So there's a campaign around that and we are strongly campaigning and lobbying the UK government on this to change the mind and strengthen the provisions, not weaken them. I must say that uh, I can see that you worked very hard with this issue in both Denmark and the UK, but I do have a final question to both of you. What do you think would be the consequences of so many persons with uh, disability, and in this case uh, blind and partially sighted, Uh, who cannot participate fully in the public life, political life, or uh, vote independently. Uh, could you say a few words about that? Let's start with you, Diana. Yes. Um, well, first of all, I think we we all, and in most parts of the world, uh, we live in, in democracies one way or the other, where voting is is seen as something natural, something we do occasionally and a way to influence society. And I think for people not having access to voting is 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 demoralizing. It it kind of it kind of spells out how you are different, how you are not uh contributing or participating. And I think that's a very uh negative uh thing for the individual. Um, at the same time, I'm sometimes wondering what would happen if actually everyone with a disability came out in force and, and did cast their vote, did have access. Would that change anything in politics? What would happen if, if, if we got to that point? Because we, we can see in, in, in many countries around the world, the number of persons with disabilities is much higher than what we see in Europe. Um, how would it change the landscape of politics if we actually got everyone on board? So I think that's an interesting thought to, to play with sometimes, yeah. Mm, interesting. So James, do you have any thoughts about this? Yes, I think uh, another way to look at it is that 
um, that the way in which we vote in the UK and I know across mo most of Europe has been set since the sort of mid late 19th century. It's a piece of paper with a pencil <laughs> and you mark how you want to vote and you put it in a box and it gets counted. Now, there's lots of other things you can do, electronic counting, post ballots, telephone voting, I know happens in some parts of Europe, but it cannot be the case that that way of voting 150 years later, with all the technology that we have, um, that it is not possible to identify an easily workable solution using technology to be able to give people what is, you know, the, it underpins our democratic way of life. It's a, it's a human right to be able to express your opinion in a vote in secret and in confidence. And it's so fundamental. And there's so much technology out there. I just think it just needs to be sorted out. And it'd be very interesting to speak to Diana about the work that's gone in Denmark, because we must be able to bring this together to get simple, workable technology solutions uh, to be able to resolve this issue. Thank you very much, both of you. It has been very inspiring to listen to you and uh, also to hear about the work you both uh, do. So thank you also to everybody who has been listening to the Rights Reporting podcast. Uh, this show is a part of a European Parvis project, and this project is led by the European Blind Union, the Swedish Association of the Visually Impaired, and the Eye Association of the Netherlands. And the project is supported uh, by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme of the European Union. Thank you for that. And did you get curious about this subject? Uh, would you like to know more? Well, you are most welcome to contact us. You can find uh, different contact details in the show notes. Uh, I also would like to say thank you to Emil Cornelis, who is our soundmaster and who makes sure that we all can be heard. So the next episode of this uh, podcast will be uh, aired in about two months. So I hope you will be able to listen to us then. Uh, one way is, for instance, to subscribe in your podcast app so you don't forget. Until then, thank you very much and I wish you a pleasant day. This podcast was supported by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme of the European Union.